0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. author, journalist, public speaker, educator, world traveler, musician. all describe Dory Jones Yang, my guest today. Clearly an introduction for such an accomplished heavyweight could last for days, so an overview. Dory has written seven books on a wide variety of topics: historical fiction, oral history, business, her first, Pour Your Heart Into It, How Starbucks Built a Company One Cup at a Time, was a bestseller. She studied history while an undergrad at Princeton University and worked on a school newspaper. Post-graduation, Dory spent two years teaching English in Singapore, where she immersed herself in the study of Chinese, and she traveled all over Asia. Returning to the States, Dory earned a master's at Johns Hopkins in international studies with a focus on China. Asia offered a new opportunity for Dory. Fluent in Mandarin, she was hired by Businessweek as a foreign correspondent in Hong Kong, the youngest of the magazine's foreign bureau chiefs. It was the 1980s when China was starting to open its doors to the outside world, but also the time of the Tiananmen Square crisis. Dory's most recent book, When the Red Gates Open. Chronicles those eight powerful years, which include meeting and marrying Paul Yang. Impacted by the Tiananmen crackdown, Dory moved back to the states in 1990, still part of the Business Week team, and then came a stint at. US. News and World Report covering Silicon Valley. There is a lot of ground to cover, so let's meet this creative, committed world traveler. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today, Dory.
1: Thank you so much, Sandy. It's really great. I appreciate the invitation, and I'm honored to be on the program.
0: Well, Dory, as I was snooping about and reading about you, one thing that really struck me was that you're a daughter of a bookseller.
1: I'm wondering how
0: much that figured into your life.
1: My dad had a had a bookstore in Ohio, and my very first job at the age of eleven was to spend <laughs> the day with him in the summertime putting together newspapers and putting out paperbacks and putting some, putting last week's paperbacks away. And um, he himself really loved writing, and so he encouraged me to be a writer. And he's the one who suggested I be a journalist, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a funny story. I was a teenager and and getting ready to go to college, and my older sisters had graduated from college and didn't know what they were doing. So he was trying to give me some advice, and he said, I think you should consider journalism. And I said, Dad. Dad. I want to be a writer. I want to be an author. (laughs) Uh And he said, I don't think you can get a job being an author, Uh but I know you can get a paying job being a journalist. (laughs) So I took my dad's advice. Well,
0: the thing that's really interesting and how wonderful that he encouraged you is that I think we're of a similar age.
1: I don't recall there being so many female journalists back in the day. There weren't too many, although since then I've discovered quite a few that, were, that predate me by a long ways, but there really weren't too many at the time, and especially in business journalism, which is kind of hard to believe now, if you, especially if you watch business journalism mm-hmm. on TV, but mm-hmm. at that time, business journalism was really the last uh, bastion of journalism to accept women in its ranks. You know what's interesting about your
0: father encouraging you to get into the field of journalism, which is based on facts, obviously. What was, what was exciting to you on some level was making
1: up stories. Absolutely. When I was a little kid, I started writing, as a lot of uh, writers will tell you, I'm sure. And uh, even from from the age of seven and eight, I was writing little creative stories and try to take on. And when I was Ten or eleven, I tried to do takeoffs on Nancy Drew mystery stories, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, wrote some poetry in high school. So, of course, like most kids, my interest was mainly in fiction and not in nonfiction. So, it took me a while to make the transition to journalism. I find that just so
0: interesting because for me, writing is a contrived act. It's not natural. I'm way more verbal, but I think it's, I think it's just so fascinating that. You
1: can sit down at a computer and just have the stories pour out of you. It's interesting that you use the term creative women, because I also have kind of a mm, a troubled relationship with the word creative, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly creative writing. And I think it's because when I did train in writing, it was really in journalism, starting from age 18. And journalism is really very workaday. You have to go out and get the facts, and you 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 can you can't put any of your own personal opinion in there. You have to be totally objective, and it's a it's a profession, it's a job. And I remember many years later having a a girlfriend say, "Oh, I I'm really interested." She was a banker, and she said, "I'm really interested in writing because I want to get in touch with my creative side." And I said, "I don't I didn't know what I said, but it it kind of bothered me at the time because I got in writing so I could earn a living <laughs> as mm-hmm. a journalist. But it took me, start really starting around that time, when I switched to fiction, I had to take a lot of different classes to unlearn a lot of the things that I'd learned in journalism and really adopt a lot of creative writing techniques that I hadn't learned before. I'm a journalist, but not
0: a print journalist. My career was in radio and when you do radio
1: news, there's nothing kind of sexy or fanciful about that. They certainly don't work in business journalism either. And I really had to expand my vocabulary. Well, I had a you know pretty good vocabulary, as you did, I'm sure. But I had to start using it in my writing a lot more. And not only the vocabulary, but also describing people and places. For instance, in in my new memoir, I, um, I moved to Hong Kong at the age of 28 and I wanted to give my readers a sense of what Hong Kong was and is like for those readers who hadn't been to Hong Kong before. So the sights and sounds and smells and all of that. In journalism, of course, as you know, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, just trying to describe a place and a setting was new to me. And I really I worked a lot on trying to do that. You felt restricted by that as you were trying to convey all those feelings? Well, I I just felt like a kindergartner. There was a steep learning curve ahead of me, and I really needed to learn how to write fiction. And I Mm -hmm. took classes. I took classes at my local community college and at University of Washington and with a private instructor. And later online, as I switched to memoir, which is a whole different genre, I'm kind of a genre jumper, as you probably Mm -hmm. noticed, and each time I jump to a different genre, I, I take classes and learn as much as I can and read books and, and try to figure out how to how to write in that mm-hmm. new genre. Well, how great that you're we're open to all of that. Well, it's not it's not really the best way to manage a writing career, I have to say, if I were really focused on being a, a best selling murder mystery writer or mm-hmm. uh, the people who really sell a lot of books are the ones that pick a genre, get very good at it and stick to it. And in my case, I kind of indulged myself a bit and, and switched from genre to genre, which as a, as a fulfilling life was a wonderful thing to do. Let's talk about that fulfilling life. Where did the study of
0: Chinese and Asia factor into your life? What was the attraction for you back in the day?
1: Well, that's very interesting because when I was in school and in, even in college, it never occurred to me to study Chinese. I grew up in Ohio. There weren't many people who spoke any foreign languages there.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: What I found was I really loved languages. And when I finished, I was about to finish college and I wanted to, I really, I had a, a I was single-minded in my pursuit of journalism, but one very smart person gave me some advice and said, I think you need to, to really succeed in journalism, you need to have some subject matter expertise, something that you know about and Mm. can write about, not just go in and write police beat stories or Mm. whatever just happens to be that day's news, but really get to know some topic very well. So I had this idea in my head because I love languages that maybe I could be a foreign correspondent. <laughs> and of course, it's a dream of a lot of people, but I, uh, I, I wasn't sure how to do that. There isn't an obvious career path for becoming a foreign correspondent. And I found after college, I was able to get a fellowship to spend two years in Singapore teaching English and studying Chinese. And I didn't know anything about China, but I fell in love with the country after I fell in love with the language. First, it's just so deliciously difficult. I was a a language geek. I was somebody who just had to, just was compelled to learn it because it's so difficult.
0: Really? I mean, there's no
1: basis of comparison. I don't even know how you embark on that. Well, there are two things that make it super difficult. One is the writing, which is not phonetic. Mm -hmm. And I could never understand how such smart people could have developed over thousands of years and not developed phonetics. (laughs) But it's not phonetic. You have to memorize not just how it sounds, but how you write it, which is different from how it sounds. So that's like twice as much work right there. And then the other thing is the tones. So Americans who are fluent in English don't have any idea what a tonal language is. You mean like inflection? Yes. We do know if you ask a question, uh, is this right? You know, Mm -hmm. your voice goes up right. And if you say a sentence, this is right. Right. It goes, your voice goes down. So we do automatically have our voice go up and down sometimes. But in Chinese, it's a different word. So the word ma is different from the word ma. So we hear (laughs) M-A. We mm-hmm. don't hear that there's a difference in those. So if you say ma, that's mother. And if you say ma, that's horse. And if you say ma, that means scold. So my mother scolded the horse. <laughs> no. So were you also attracted to the challenge of learning Chinese? Absolutely. I love the the challenge of it. It just was so hard. And but I was very lucky because when I was in Singapore I, I just took the, the fellowship that was available that year. But it happened to be they offered instruction in Chinese four hours a day, five days a week. And it turns out that's the best way because it's so hard. If you can spend many, many hours learning it all at once, then that's that's a really great way to learn it, just to mm. immerse yourself in it and really, really focus on it.
0: So that, those two years... In Singapore, you became fluent in Chinese?
1: Pretty fluent. It's so difficult. It takes a lot longer. I mean, I've studied French and Spanish and German, and I I studied Spanish for about six months in New York, and I was able to pick up a novel and read it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, well, that doesn't happen in Chinese. It just doesn't happen. So you come back to the States after traveling all over Asia, which must have been a real fabulous experience. Can I
1: just interrupt to say I got to go to Afghanistan and Iran when it was still possible to go there as a backpacking American kid, Wow! <laughs> which is a long time ago. You did this solo? You traveled um, all over by yourself? I went with yourself? a couple of friends, mm-hmm. two other friends. And uh, actually there was part of it that I was solo, but mostly with, with these other young backpackers. And you were gone
0: for how long? And just in terms of the traveling part? The traveling
1: part was about two months. And so then you came home and you knew you were going to Johns Hopkins? Yes. I I had already been accepted there to study international relations. And basically it was because I I really loved the Chinese language, but I didn't know anything about China. I had never taken one course about China when I was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. I'd actually majored in European history, which has (laughs) nothing to do with it. So I realized I didn't know. I I needed to learn a lot. And instead of studying, say, East Asian Studies, which is usually something that goes into an academic degree, I studied international relations. And that meant that I was also studying about international economics and American foreign policy. At the same time, I was studying about history of China and the politics of China and the economics Mm -hmm. of China. So all the bases were covered for you, in a sense. Yeah, it was a a good choice. So how did
0: it come about that you got... Hooked by Business Week.
1: Well, I was in the right place at the right time. So I you really realize there is you really an believe element. That? <laughs> well, there is in my case there is an element of luck, and here's why. So I mentioned to you that I had this background in journalism, and that I, I developed a background in in Chinese language and about China. But at that time, American journalists were not allowed to go to China because give us the year. This would have been. Um, 1979 okay was the year that the US and and the People's Republic of China established diplomatic relations and in in that year the leader of China Deng Xiaoping came to Washington DC when I was a grad student and I got a chance to see him and there was a great deal of excitement and enthusiasm and 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 optimism about the US China relationship at that time because it had been it had been one of hostility for 30 years. And suddenly the U.S. was allowed to open an embassy in Beijing and U.S. journalists were allowed to go and cover China. And I was in the middle of my grad program there. So I waited another year, finished it. And then at that time, U.S. magazines and newspapers were all looking to hire journalists who had some understanding of this huge complex country that most of us, you know, really only understood Uh a little bit. And Mm -hmm. nobody, no Americans had been able to go there. So most people, most Americans didn't know anything about it. And I knew a little, I didn't know a lot, but I spoke the language and I had studied about it. So- uh, Hiring you was a (laughs) no-brainer. Well, I hired, I applied for jobs at all the major newspapers and magazines that have foreign correspondents. They don't all, but I applied to all of them. And then I was hired by Business Week. And as
0: I mentioned in the introduction, you were sent to Hong Kong. So on some level, did you
1: feel like you died and went to heaven? You bet. (laughs) It was my (laughs) dream come true. Business Week, unlike some other publications, decided not to cover China out of Beijing. They wanted to cover China from a base in Hong Kong, in part because the U.S. still did a lot more business with Hong Kong and Taiwan and Southeast Asia than it did with China. So for a business magazine, China was exciting and a possibility, but there was hardly any business being done. So I was based in Hong Kong, which turned out to be a great place to cover China from. And how long were you there? I was there eight years, from 1982 to 1990. Describe that experience for us, Looking back on it now, it was a time of of optimism and hope and possibility, because China had been so closed for so long that any opening was just mind boggling. And they kept uh, being more and more open every year. It was two steps forward, one step back, but they were still opening at an amazing pace, and they were also adopting a lot of capitalist techniques to develop their economy. And this was, well, this was music to the ears of Business Week readers who believe in capitalism. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were thrilled that China was opening to foreign trade and investment and they were allowing private entrepreneurs for the first time, which most communist countries don't because communism traditionally has been, the state owns all the means of production right. and you can't go into business for yourself. So starting in the 80s, Chinese citizens had had a choice they could quit their job with a state owned company and go into business for themselves mm-hmm. and so it was a it was a great opportunity for a lot of people and the Chinese citizens were very excited about about entrepreneurship as well so it was it was a good time to be a business journalist. Forgive the sexism, but how were you received as a woman? Well, there weren't many women in my position there that's had been my a point, few, yeah. There had been a few. I was one of several pioneers, but Businessweek itself was uh, very male-dominated in terms of the editors. I initially worked for Business Week in New York for a year and a half, and of course, all my, my bosses and my boss's bosses' bosses were, were all men, because women had only just recently joined that joined the workforce really mm-hmm. as journalists. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there had been a, a landmark lawsuit against Newsweek, which had not allowed women to be writers, only researchers. Hmm. And the women won that. So the magazines were looking to hire women, but of course at a very low level. Right. It didn't bother me at all in a way because the men who were uh, my bosses were very good mentors to me and very encouraging. But I did have, there was, I don't know if it's a funny story. It wasn't funny for me at the time, but when I was still in New York, where most of the Business Suite people worked, there was one time when a bunch of us editors were leaning over a low table and kind of looking at some article or layout or something that, that we were all talking about. And one of the older men Took a piece of paper and crumpled it up into a ball, and threw it at me to try to get it in my shirt. Oh. To hit my boobs. Oh God! And but, I mean, there are a lot worse things that happen to women in the workforce. So I you really do? shouldn't complain. But it was. No. Just, but what did you do? Uh,
0: well, what can you do?
1: Yeah, you know, you can't you're tell them to fuck off, can you? No, in those days you couldn't. You know that. Yeah, you just course. have to be. You're just. Kind of honored yes, to be there at all. A similar
0: age, exactly. And mm-hmm. and
1: what do you say? But mm-hmm. uh, it was just demeaning and belittling. But in general, I did have some some bosses that were very good mentors to me.
0: Well, you can't diminish the fact that, as I said in the introduction, you were the youngest of the magazine's foreign bureau chiefs. That's uh, that's more than a big deal.
1: Yeah, know. and I was also the youngest, uh, probably the first, and. Uh, uh, foreign bureau chief to have a baby overseas. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but there was no precedent for, wow. for that. And I had a big housing allowance because Hong Kong was so, believe it or not, more expensive than New York at the time. And they gave me a housing allowance to, in order to live there. And I couldn't, I couldn't forego the housing allowance to take any unpaid leave. So I had sure. to have the very, the minimum amount of time off for that baby. So let's get into the personal. First, let me ask you
0: that in the eight years that you were abroad, was there a back and forth
1: between there and the States? I stayed put in Hong Kong. I lived there for eight years, although I spent some time in Beijing as well. And I would, uh, Business Week would bring me back every couple of years for a conference and to talk to the editors, but I was in Asia full-time. And in those days, long-distance phone calls were extremely expensive, so, most of us communicated by telex. I think today's <laughs> listeners don't even know what a right, telex machine right, is. Right. But I had to learn how to use a telex machine. And I couldn't call up my editors and just talk about stories. I had to do everything in writing with a via telex.
0: Did you have carte blanche when it came to what stories you wanted to file?
1: No, not really. <laughs> in fact, people were surprised at the time when I told them this, but all the foreign correspondents for Business Week competed for space. So there was a limited amount of space in the magazine for international stories. And the correspondents in London and Tokyo and Paris and South Africa all had to convince the editors that our story was the most important story that week. That's crazy. Well, that's the way it was. You have this professional life where you are
0: reporting and you're, you're, in Chi- you're in China, you're based in Hong Kong, back and forth. So how did the personal get involved? How'd you wind up getting married?
1: <laughs> well, one thing about my memoir that I very deliberately thought about when I was writing, getting back to the whole writing process, mm-hmm. is that, for instance, if, if you love historical fiction as I do, you'll know that it's, it's really an individual story that draws you in and then you learn about the time and the place. And I wanted my memoir to be like that. I wanted my story to be the story that, that the readers are following and they learn about China and, the, and that time and place through my experience. As a journalist, I'm not used to writing about myself at all. I really yeah. had to learn how to do that and how to be vulnerable and how to, how to tell people... Some sometimes you know awkward, difficult experiences I had, or kind very of feel personal, like or naked in front of. It, yes, reader. it did. Mm-hmm. And now the book is out, and I'm and <laughs> my stories are are out there. Everybody knows all my secrets. Well, most of my secrets. I didn't put all of them in there. Good. But for you. <laughs> about a year after I arrived in in Hong Kong, Business Week wanted me to fly back to New York to take part in a conference. And I was on the airplane flying from Hong Kong to San Francisco, which is a 14-hour flight, and this really good-looking guy, Chinese guy, sits next to me. And I, I had brought along some reading that I needed to do, but I kind of tucked it under my skirt and put it aside for a bit and started chatting with him, in part because I heard him speak Mandarin, and he spoke very... I don't, this is probably going to sound funny, but just bell clear, perfect Mandarin, which there are a lot of people in China who speak Mandarin, but have different accents. And, and in Hong Kong, they speak Cantonese, which was much harder to understand. And I thought, whoa, this is a chance I can practice speaking Mandarin. I, mm-hmm. I was that much of a language nerd that I always always trying to do that. So I started talking to him. And he took one look at me with my <laughs> round nose and my <laughs> frizzy hair and blue eyes. And he said he started speaking to me in fluent English because he had been living in the U.S. for about 20 years, although he was born in China. So this is my husband, Paul Yang. He was born in China, and his dad was with the previous government, was with the Chiang Kai-shek folks. And when the communists took over in 1949, they had to flee. Otherwise, he would have been killed so they went to Taiwan mm-hmm. and he was there for what he, while well, my husband was in high school and college, he lived there and then he came to the U S but his parents still lived in Taiwan while, while I, after I met him. So I got to really, one of the amazing things about meeting him at that time and getting to know him and eventually marrying him was that I got to see China from the inside, from inside a Chinese family. And to me, that was just magical. But inside, from a Chinese family that
0: was not necessarily smack in the middle of China,
1: as in back in the day, right? Right. So his parents were living in Taiwan, right? uh, Which is uh, culturally, linguistically, ethnically very Chinese. And I visited them a few times very shortly after I met him. I visited them. But another amazing thing was happening in China in the eighties, and that was that. Chinese families like Paul's that had fled when the communists took over were able to go back to China and find their relatives. Now, this is really hard for a lot of people to imagine, but for 30 years, they were not allowed to contact their relatives that they left behind in China, which was basically all their relatives. Only the nuclear family had come out. So all the aunts and uncles and, and cousins and everybody, they couldn't contact until the 80s So when Paul was there, he was able to, in the 80s, he was able to go to some really obscure remote parts of China and meet some of his relatives, his mother's family's relatives and his dad's family's relatives. And because we were together, I was able to go with him Mm -hmm. to some, Mm -hmm. like a teeny tiny farm village out about three hours from Beijing, which was... Really, it felt like traveling back in time a thousand years, and also to a, a kind of an obscure city on the coast of China that no foreigners ever went to, and to see to hear the his family 's stories, what it had been like for them under Mao, and how how much they'd suffered because they had relatives in Taiwan, of course they suffered under mao, and to it, what it really taught me was how important these changes were that were happening in China. So Deng Xiaoping, with all introducing capitalism and allowing people to have their own choice in what kind of work they do and start businesses or whatever, just was so refreshing to the people of China after the kind of
0: persecution and repression Mm -hmm. that they had been Mm -hmm. through
1: that I was just cheering him on, just saying, go for it, Mr. Dung. <laughs> this is making a huge difference in the lives of a lot of people, including people that I, that I knew as uh, effectively relatives of mine, in-laws. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because after we married, then there they they were folks that I got to know. Why was he on that flight? He had, for the last year or so, been working in Hong Kong, Selling real estate, u s. real estate to jittery Hong Kong investors. So Hong Kong people were very worried about the future because the uh, it had been it was a British colony, and Margaret Thatcher had just gone to Beijing to talk to the leaders of China about whether or not they could stay and if they couldn't stay, how they were going to give it back to China. So people in Hong Kong were very, very worried, and many of them were looking for a foreign passport or looking to invest in foreign property to get their money out of Hong Kong, because many of them, their parents and their dads and grandpas had had their money taken away from them when back in Shanghai and Tianjin when the communists took over. So actually, he was doing that. Yeah, but not for nothing,
0: Everything old is new again. What's going on now in Hong Kong, I can't imagine how that hasn't
1: rocked his world, your world, other family members' world. It's totally rocked us, both what's going on in in Hong Kong and what's going on with US-China relations right now. Right. It's it's very upsetting and disturbing for anyone who has relatives in China because it really gets to the heart of what my book is about, which is how important it is to, for Americans to try to understand China. The stronger and more powerful China gets, the more important it is. But now, especially with COVID, Americans can't go to China. Chinese can't come here. A lot of those people-to-people contacts have been cut. And Paul has been keeping in touch with all of his relatives and friends in China through WeChat, And recently, Trump said he wants to get rid of WeChat, and that would be like taking Paul's voice box away. You know, it's just really, really hard for Chinese Americans.
0: In terms of today's world, having the president of the United States not refer to it as COVID-19, but to call it the China virus.
1: He does that very much on purpose, and he's trying to distract Mm
0: -hmm. from
1: his mishandling of the of the epidemic, right. but it per- makes perfect sense to him as a political ploy, but there are a lot of people who are suffering. U.S.-China relations, it will be very different in the future. The people-to-people contact is, uh, is really vital in terms of just us trying to understand where they're coming from and for them mm-hmm. to try to understand where we're coming from. You can't do that if you can't talk to people. On some level, is that, in a sense, a goal of yours? Absolutely. I really want to uh, build bridges between the U.S. and China, and in particular to help Americans to understand more about China. And I did this with my children's books as well. And almost every book that I've written has to do with the, uh, my effort to try to help Americans get a deeper understanding of China. And be that bridge. Yes.
0: Talk to me about your books. What was the catalyst for starting to write novels. I understand about the business book about Starbucks, which must have been a hoot and a half.
1: It was great. I mean, I was a business journalist and it made sense. Uh, I w- at that time, I was covering business in Seattle and Starbucks was very small. It had only recently gone into New York. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't widely known nationwide. So it was, it was kind of a small local company that was, that was doing good and going nationwide. And that's where I started. But then later, I, I uh, kind of went back to my original love of China, and most of my books have had something to do with China or Chinese Americans. What prompted you to write the children's books? And in, in terms of trying to get Americans to understand China better, it really starts with getting kids to understand China sure. better. Yeah. And I, think kids, are open. I mm-hmm. think kids are open to learning about all kinds of things, certainly to learning about other countries and cultures and ethnic groups. And it's, uh, there's a whole movement in children's literature about that we need diversity and the importance of, of getting diverse voices. And of course, I'm not a Chinese voice, but I understand a lot about China. So I wanted to write books from a Chinese child's point of view, looking at the U.S. or a- adapting to life in the U.S. So it's really partly an immigrant's point of view as well, which I get through Paul, not through my own experience, but I think that's, that's a cause I really believe in, is to get mm-hmm. kids to understand other countries and cultures, all of them. But of course, in my case, especially China.
0: Uh, absolutely.
1: Now, you and Paul have a daughter. Yes. Who is how old now? She's 33. She was born in Hong Kong while I was a foreign correspondent. I had to mm-hmm. figure out how to be that job of foreign correspondent is always on, always traveling, high pressure. And my husband was working as well. So I had to figure out how to keep working with, with a baby. And I was very lucky because in Hong Kong at that time, you could get reliable, affordable childcare, much more so. My daughter recently had a baby and she lives in San Francisco. <laughs> and it's a lot harder for her to keep working and to find affordable, reliable child care, although she has. She's very lucky, but you never know, I mean, right? But I was able to get a, a Filipina woman who is a live-in, and she was a nanny and helped me raise my baby.
0: You know what? Since I'm getting from you as we're having this conversation, doesn't seem that anything intimidates you.
1: <laughs> it wasn't until after I came back to the U.S. and had been back for many years. And you went, I was, holy
0: shit, where I've been, what I've well, done kind of was, thing?
1: I was meeting like ordinary Americans, <laughs> by which I mean people who weren't steeped in China. Now, in, in, in Hong Kong and China, everybody I knew was, was just was really steeped in Hong Kong and China and knew everything about it. And I got back to Seattle and I started meeting like real people. <laughs> and um, at that point, somebody turned to me and said, you must have been really afraid. And I was the first time somebody said that to me, I was like confused. Because it really didn't occur to me to be afraid. And I didn't think of myself as fearless, but actually I was. I was so excited about living overseas, living in Singapore, living in Hong Kong. When I got to Hong Kong, I didn't know anybody. I had to make friends. I had to find sources for my journalism. I had to start from scratch.
0: No, you didn't, because you just said you went to Singapore. On your own on a fellowship, and then you traveled all over the place, and then you find yourself in Afghanistan and Iran. Let's deify Dory (laughs) a little bit. You know, maybe looking back, it gives you pause. Like, I can't believe I pulled this off, but you did. So you
1: have to own that. Well, it's it's kind of interesting to me that I wasn't afraid, though, (laughs) because maybe I should have been. (laughs) Well, I mean, did you start with this incredible foundation
0: with your parents? I mean, who who were very supportive and. Said you can do whatever you want to do?
1: I guess I certainly had good parenting. And I was I was the youngest of four kids. I was the third of three look alike Jones girls. <laughs> and later somebody was saying me, everybody has a everybody has a reason for living overseas. And everybody's escaping something. And I thought, I'm not escaping something. I I didn't have a bad childhood that I have to get as far away from my parents as possible. But I realized, and this took many years. But I realized that I was escaping ordinariness. Ah. I mean, when you're the third of three sisters that all look alike, and wait a minute, which one are you? Yeah. I just wanted to do something extraordinary. I wanted to be out of the box and off on the other side of the world. I, want, I love being in the middle of nowhere. Wow. <laughs> and that's that's, just, it gives me a thrill. <laughs> for whatever the, the catalyst is, and I'm a broken
0: record with this, when it comes to the women I've had conversations with, that incredible sense of self. I i, I bring it up every damn time because it, <laughs> it's the tie that binds these 400 plus women who have come into my life. You have to agree with that,
1: right? I think that self-confidence obviously is a big, big part of it. But I will also say, one of the things I learned in writing this memoir is that I was very quiet and reserved and an introvert, which a lot of writers are. And that is not my image of what a journalist is. So I wasn't hard charging and hard nosed and pushy. I just couldn't, couldn't do that. I mean, I kind of wanted to, but I didn't have the personality for that. I was confident, but only, you know, as confident as you get from, I knew what I didn't know. I had to, mm-hmm. I knew what I had to learn and what kind of mm-hmm. research I had to do. So one of the struggles that I talk about in the, in this memoir is the insecurity that I felt. I, the, the scariest thing for me was walking into a cocktail reception and not knowing anybody and having to talk to strangers. Now that may seem very strange for this self-confident woman that I've been trying to describe to you, But it was terrifying for me. I remember I I tell the story about one time I went into a, a cocktail reception like that and I saw across the room two very prominent businessmen, one of them British and one of them Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese. They were exactly the kind of people I needed to get to know. And I needed to go up with them and schmooze, right? I needed to tell them who I was. I mean, Business Week was the business, the biggest American Business Magazine. They had a reason to talk to me, but I just couldn't do it. I turned around and went to the bar and got myself a glass of wine, mm-hmm. started chatting with somebody, and I turned around and they were gone. And, so a missed
0: opportunity, huh?
1: Yes, but later I uh, I just kind of kicked myself on the way because I it's just one of those internal barriers I get that it. I, had. I get it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get over that. And then I read a few days later, I read in the paper that this big Chinese businessman, Lee Ka-shing, was going to be at a, a, a little ceremony for one of the buildings that he had just completed on the rooftop of a nearby building a week later. So I, uh, Quashed my insecurities <laughs> under my foot like an old cigarette an aunt, butt. Or an ant. And I took my little reporter's notebook and I went up to the rooftop of this building. And there, there were only about 20 or 30 people up there. And I was the only non-Chinese person. So I kind of stood out in the crowd. And I had practiced over and over again the sentence in Mandarin. I had under, I, I knew that he couldn't understand Mandarin. So I went up to him and I said in my absolute best tones, mm-hmm. I'm Dory Jones and I am the foreign correspondent for Business Week and I would love to have an interview with you. And he said, Oh, you speak Chinese very well. And I was just like really polite and I was direct, but I wasn't I wasn't aggressive about it. I was just kind of being on my best, thoughtful, good manners. And it worked. He gave me an interview. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I thought, well, maybe there's a workaround. Maybe mm-hmm. even if I can't, I'm not naturally aggressive, I can find ways to get the story.
0: Well, you don't have to steamroll.
1: I wasn't able to steamroll, so I had to find something else. Well, it's worked for you
0: because yeah. look at how successful you've been. Talk about what you haven't done or written about that you would like to. What, what kind of piques your interest these days?
1: Well, that's really hard to say because to me, this, this book is the capstone of my career. And if I never wrote another book, then that would be okay. But I do have another one that's, in my, in my, my mind, it's smaller and it's on a totally different topic. But I wrote one book about wise women, a wise women of a generation older than I am. I had met some and asked them 20 questions about everyday wisdom And someone said to me, those women don't have a lot of diversity. Hmm. And so I thought, well, why don't I try to find some wise women of different religions? And some of wisdom, I mean, they call them wisdom traditions for good reason. A lot of personal wisdom arises from religious training that we have. And But these are everyday kinds of questions, like how do you deal with adult children, and how do you deal with difficult people, and tell me about forgiveness. Those are the kinds of questions I was asking. They were not religious questions. Kind of introspective questions? Yeah. And I went out and interviewed 10 different women of different religions. And I have those interviews that I've started to transcribe, and I think that that would be my next book. So you've always got an iron in the fire. Yeah, that's kind of the way it is. And when you work for yourself, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to find the motivation inside yourself, because I'm, I'm no longer on anybody's payroll.
0: Have you ever wanted to be a professor?
1: At one point, I thought about it. When I came back to the U.S., I wasn't sure what I could do. So first of all, I came back to the U.S. in 1990, and the reason is I was, very, I was in despair about China because of what happened. At Tiananmen Square, so Tiananmen Square, the protests were just thrilling. It was so exciting. People were so open and so free, and talking about everything yeah, was scary a very as hell. Also, way. well, it wasn't scary at first. There were six weeks of protests that were exciting,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we kind of knew that the, uh, the army was coming in. And then when the army cracked down, I really thought that it was all over for China, that that was it. All of these wonderful reforms that we'd been seeing and all the economic growth and the possibilities were over. And U.S.-China relations were terrible. Hong Kong was in panic mode again with people trying to leave. And I just thought, I don't want to be a reporter in China anymore. So I... I came back to the U.S. at that Mm -hmm. point.
0: I guess it must be so hard for you to look at where Hong Kong is now with all the demonstrations and all the repression. It just must tear at your heartstrings.
1: Yes. After Tiananmen Square, after I covered it, I uh, wrote uh, my articles and then I I came back to Hong Kong because that's where my husband and baby were living. And the people of Hong Kong at that time as well were protesting in the streets and we joined them and we they had a a saying, long live democracy with a two finger kind of V for victory sign. And we were marching down the street and going to the big park and and participating in those protests. So when the protests uh, started last year, I really related to them. But one difference is that the protests in Hong Kong turned violent, which they hadn't done in Beijing way back then. And for a long time, they weren't violent. They were peaceful for a long time. But then they turned violent, and they started destroying subway stations and throwing firebombs. And mm-hmm. that was very distressing for me to begin with. And friends of mine who live in Hong Kong said it was, their life was totally disrupted. They couldn't get to yeah. work. Even if they were going to meet someone, they weren't sure if they could take the subway. So it was distressing on a lot of different levels. And then now, when the China passed a national security law, because Hong Kong couldn't do it, they were supposed to do it themselves, and they, the government of Hong Kong, just wasn't strong enough to be able to do it themselves. Or They're right. organized, and there's definitely a lot less freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Yeah, to oh, <laughs> say yeah. it mildly, than there was before. But I do, I, I'm generally an optimistic person, and I'm always looking for the silver linings, even in this time of COVID, which is you know, hard to find. But Hong Kong has always been about business.
0: Yes, and yes. And I
1: think that the business will come back. And the protesters, the protest leaders anyway, are going to leave, of course. They can't stay there right. because they can't speak out. and it, And some of them have already been arrested and are on bail. But the... The, the people who weren't so involved in it, they may have been very idealistic about the protests, but they're they're gonna get back to business at some point. Not right away. So do you and your husband see a time when you guys can get on a plane and get well back we plan to get on a plane in April of this yeah, year. Nice try. We nice had try. we had reservations to go to Hong Kong, to go to several different cities in China. We go every couple of years anyway. And he goes even more often because he has business connections there as well as family. And we couldn't do it. And I would love to go back and I, I hope I can go back. My book begins and ends with Tiananmen Square and China will not discuss Tiananmen Square. So I'm certain that my book will not be translated into Chinese and will not be circulated there. But I think that as an individual, I'll be still allowed to travel there. Although I don't know. I really don't know if they'll let me in. I think they will. But U.S.-China relations keep getting worse, so I don't, I don't even know if I'll be allowed in. But if I'm allowed in, I'll definitely go back.
0: Well, let's mention again your memoir of China's reawakening is When the Red Gates Opened. Dory Jones-Yang, it's been such a pleasure to meet and get to know you. What a fascinating life. I'm sure you have more. You call it a, a memoir. I would also say autobiography that there's always a chapter two.
1: I call it a memoir because it's only eight years of my life. You and I have talked about a lot about the years before and since, but the book itself is about those eight years that I was in Hong Kong. it was my pleasure to meet and get to know you. Well, thank you so much. It's been really a joy to talk to you, Sandy. Thank you.
0: Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.